So Lamentations chapter 5, we've made it to the end, the last study in our series in Lamentations, and uh, I hope that it's been um, a blessing for you all. I know it definitely have uh, been blessed and enjoyed being able to go through this study. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will hop in. Our God and Father, I thank you that we can start our week off together, looking at your word, and uh, just growing in our knowledge and our understanding of you and your son. We pray that you would conform us to your son's image according to the words uh, that, that we read and study that you have given us. We pray this in your son's name, amen. So let's start on a very light note. How about disciplining our children? How many of us have disciplined a child this week? <laughs> Raising hands. I know we've got a few gray hairs that probably some of that time has passed us a little bit. Maybe have, <laughs> that's right. And now it's more spoiling the grandchildren and then sending them back home. So, but think about a time either where you have disciplined in the past, if children aren't a part of your household, or um, if you currently have children, I'd like you to think about a specific time this week where you did discipline them. Think about what was the circumstance and how did that discipline go, and we're going to actually share a little bit. Very specifically, think about what was the reason why did we discipline our child? It's probably not because we enjoy it. So, if you have the instance that um, in your in your mind that you're kind of mulling over, let me kind of ask, and we'll have maybe a couple people share. But what was the purpose of your disciplining the child? What was the outcome that you were hoping for as you entered into the discipline? Somebody would like to share that. Why were we disciplining? Yeah, yeah. Change of behavior. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. Let's get you to change. Absolutely. What else? What is a purpose of why you would discipline your child? I'm sorry? Yes, yeah, to, to instruct them, this is good, this is bad, don't do bad, do well. So as we've studied Lamentations over the last four weeks, we had a break in there, we've seen the rod of God's judgment, the rod of God's discipline repeated in each chapter. And so looking specifically at Lamentations, what was the occasion for God's judgment and discipline upon Jerusalem. Why was God judging them and disciplining them in the first place? What, what was um, the occasion for this? Nita, I'm sorry? Yeah, there was the idolatry, and specifically, they had um, the idol of these other nations that we were looking at, where issues would come up, people would invade, and instead of turning to the Lord they would turn to these other nations. Exactly. And so we had had a history building of Israel 
turning from their God to other gods, some literal idols that they were worshiping, but others idols of the heart, idols of their hope. Um, And the Lord, as a result of this, was disciplining them. So, Lamentations, if this is your first week here, and I see if that, we have a few faces that haven't been with us the whole time, but Lamentations is Jeremiah's lament. It is his crying out in response to God's judgment of Jerusalem. So God had judged Jerusalem by bringing in the Babylonians, having them dis- destroy the city, taking the people and leaving. And through this whole process, Jeremiah has been there in the midst of the city itself, and this is his lament over what has happened. So let me kind of go and give a flyby. We're going to look at um, each chapter that we've covered in Lamentations so far to get us to this point right here. And on the very front of your, of your handout, um, th- this is the outline from each chapter. And so you can actually look down there. But Lamentations chapter 1, it starts and it shows us four truths of God's bitter judgment of sin. And each one of these should drive us to repentance. We saw that God is the sovereign judge and they are guilty before him. That sin is deceptive. They were deceived. And ultimately, in their situation, the judgment brought confession. Then you go into Lamentations chapter 2, and where the first chapter was really dealing horizontally, how how the other nations were working in relation um, to uh, Jerusalem, the second chapter is more vertical. How do you respond in light of discipline? And so we, we actually saw three godly responses that we must exhibit as we're surrounded by God's bitter judgment of sin that there should be sorrow, there should be lamenting over the condition of the lost, and that should motivate you towards evangelism of the lost, and even at the same time, a godly person experiencing the sorrows of God's judgment of the sin around him, is, it is appropriate to lament your own affliction um, as you're a, a witness to the judgment of the God. Then in chapter 3, We see that God's character demands four responses when you are under the judgment of God. And that's that you must remember God's bitter judgment of sin, recall his character, who he is. And this is uh, the point if if you remember in the middle of the of the ver I mean in the middle of the chapter three, which is the middle of Lamentations, you have the reminder that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And this is the culmination where we were reflecting on who God is and who His character um, is. And in light of that, you are able to rest under the rod of God's discipline because of His character. You don't have to try to extricate yourself out from underneath His discipline. And ultimately, you are to return to God. Then in chapter 4, which is where we looked at last week, we saw three potential idols that any of those, they are unable to sustain you while you are under the weight of God's bitter judgment of sin. And the three idols that we saw specifically in the case of Jerusalem, which also can be seen in our lives, was that the societal foundations must not be your hope. 
God actually lit the flame and consumed those foundations. We saw that the religious leaders must not be your hope. The hope should be in, um, for especially as New Testament believers, in Christ alone. And finally, worldly helps must not be your hope. And so each of these were potential idols. So one of the things that each chapter in Lamentations up to this point has done is it has started by describing the rod of God's wrath upon the backs of Judah and specifically upon Jerusalem. So each lament has specified that these were not just general tragedies that happened. These, these weren't just effects of the fallen world, but actually they were God's sovereign act upon his people. And he was the one that was inflicting the wounds, inflicting the judgment upon, as he described, the daughter of Israel, Jerusalem. So God was the one who actually was inflicting this, um, this judgment, and there was a purpose for it. The judgment was not just um, happenstance or, oh, there's wickedness, let me go ahead and destroy them, but there was a purpose. So we've, we've looked at this previously a few weeks ago, but let's go ahead and flip in your Old Testaments to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is going to be important as, our, as we look at our study today. But I want us to look at the words that God gave Israel prior to their entering the promised land. So they're on the other side of the Jordan waiting to come in with Joshua. And God has given them a law the second time. He's given them the blessings that would happen if they obeyed then the cursings that would happen if they disobeyed, and part of those cursings if they persisted in their rebellion was that they were going to be um, exiled into a foreign land. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and it says, and when all these things come upon you, the exile, the, the judgment and the destruction, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the, all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God and you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the people's where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart's of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. The purpose of God's judgment and the exile was so that his people would turn to him, so that they would return to him. This is why he gave the words to Israel before they even entered the promised land in the first place. The theme of lamentations 
follows right in line with what God had given in, in uh, um, Deuteronomy 30. And this is what we've seen reiterated each chapter so far in Lamentations, that God's character demands that you and I turn to Him. So let me ask a question in light of this. Understanding what God has told His people before they went into the promised land, and understanding what He has been teaching in Lamentations so far, what do you expect to see happen in Lamentations chapter 5? So think of this as a pretest. In light of what God said would happen, and in light of what we have seen every chapter so far in Lamentations, what do you think we might see take place in Lamentations 5? Russ, got a little grin there. <laughs> Absolutely. If God's character demands that we turn to Him, we can probably expect to see what God promised would happen in Lamentations 30, or I mean, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 30, we should see that play out here at the end in Lamentations 5, that God's people turn to Him. We should see them turning back to, as Deuteronomy 3 would say it, Yahweh their God. This was God's plan. So the question is, how will the people respond? God's plan was to call them back in repentance so that they would turn to Him. How will they respond? And for us, how will we respond? When we find ourselves underneath the discipline of the Lord, how will we respond? Will we turn back to the Lord? So Lamentations um, 5, it's actually going to show us three occasions for turning to the Lord in the life of someone who is under the rod of the Lord's discipline. We're going to see that you must turn to the Lord during physical oppression, that we must turn to the Lord during emotional de depression, and that finally we must turn to the Lord even in our spiritual or godly confessions. So let's read this final lament in the book of Lamentations. Let's uh, go ahead and turn to Lamentations 5, and we're, we're going to read these 22 verses as, as uh, the way Jeremiah closes out this book of lament. Verse 1, remember, O Yahweh, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, and the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our neck. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over, rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. 
We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under the loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For the Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself that we may be restored. Renew our days of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Lamentations 5. So this lament it actually stands out from each of the other laments so far that we've seen in Lamentations. Uh, and we talked about the, the poetic meter, the kina meter, that was used pretty exclusively for funeral dirges. There's no meter in chapter 5. We've seen an acrostic format, format in, in each chapter. There's no acrostic here. Each verse is just a single line, a staccato. It's as though Jeremiah, when he gets to the end of his lament, has nothing left. He's spent physically, emotionally, and he jumps right in and he pours out his heart to the Lord. And he pours out and says, remember, O Yahweh, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember. One commentator said, the Bible frequently connects God's redemption to his grace, gracious remembering. A few examples of this would be after the judgment of the flood. In Genesis chapter 8, it says, God remembered Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God promises to never destroy mankind again. He says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remembering the everlasting covenant. You have in Deuteronomy 9, when the Israelites sinned with the golden calf, Moses pleaded with the Lord to be merciful by remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And David, he cried out to the Lord for mercy in Psalm 25. On the basis of God's remembering, he says, Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Remembering is an important theme 
throughout Lamentations. This is something that we've seen repeated and come out. We saw in chapter 1, in their suffering, Jerusalem remembers all the things that were of old, meaning the times of the glory days of Israel. They remember, remember the time when David was pursuing the Lord, pursuing godliness, and God was blessing Israel. In chapter 2, in his anger, Yahweh does not remember his footstool. He forgets his footstool, Jerusalem. In chapter 3, you see that there's a plea to God to remember afflictions, wormwood, and gall, the bitterness of God's judgment. And then right at the key crux of the center of the, the whole book, he says, my soul remembers, and this I call to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So in calling on Yahweh to remember what has befallen Jerusalem, when he says, look and see Lady Zion's disgrace, this is an appeal to God, not just for him to bring this back to mind, but it's an appeal for him to remember and to end the judgment. Remember and deliver us. The lamenter knows that if Yahweh would remember and look and see his people, he would then find the people turning back to him. And we will actually see this a little bit more in depth. But let's notice and look, first of all, when we um, have verses 2 through 13, what is it specifically that he is calling on Yahweh to look and see in his remembrance. The first occasion that the, the people have for turning to the Lord is underneath physical oppression. And they are calling on God to look and see, remember them in this. So this one's going to be a little bit more interactive. I want you to go ahead and look in verses 2 through 13. We've, we've read this together. So looking through these, what are some of the ways that you have seen the physical oppression of the people? How is it described in these verses? And you can also say, what types of oppression do we see? So if you see something, go ahead and shout it out loud enough for everyone to see, and I'll try to repeat it on this. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and this is something that we saw last week. We saw last week as well. Verse 3, they have become orphans, fatherless. The leadership in the home is gone. The, the men are gone. And notice also there in verse 3, it says, we have become fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Let's kind of talk about this um, for just a little bit here, because the, the wording is actually a little bit unique. You would think, we have become orphans, fatherless, the wives have become widows, you would expect, but it says actually our mothers are like widows. So one commentator, Abner Chow, he said, to be sure, many, many mothers have become widows in the slaughter that took place. However, they are all like widows in the sense that all mothers now have the vulnerability, they feel the loss that widowhood brings. They are utterly alone. Such abandonment 
includes the loss of family, but even those whose families are still intact may also experience the loss and the shame of being a widow. Notice here as well, if you look at being like a widow, this probably should remind you of something we've spoken about in our study before. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of Lamentations chapter 1, we talk about a widow. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, the city Jerusalem. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. Husbands and fathers, they have been slaughtered. Undoubtedly, there are many widows. And those that aren't actually widows are like widows. They're unable to provide. They have no protection. They have no security. The leadership is gone. Again, as you were mentioning. So, yes, verse 3. We have become like orphans, fatherless. We have become like widows. What else? What are the other oppressions that we see? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The inheritance is gone. In verse verse 2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers our homes to foreigners. Now, there is, a, there is an amazing study that you can look at when you look at um, the year of Jubilee and then um, basically what would happen, what God had built into the economy of the people of Israel was that you would have your inheritance. If you sold a piece of land, ultimately that land would come back in ownership back to your family. This was your family's inheritance. And so if, if I had a, a parcel of land that I was going to actually sell, the price would be dependent upon how close we are to that land being redeemed. So, you know, you, if I only have a short period to be able to use this land, I, I would pay a low price. The inheritance of the people of God that should be coming back to them, even if it was sold, it's gone. It's gone. It's in the hands of strangers. No one's giving it back. Yeah, so our inheritance has been turned over. It's a theft of property, a theft of inheritance, and even in a little bit more deep way than we would even understand in our culture. So, yeah. What else? What other oppressions do we see in these verses? Yeah, Drew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, I mean, this is financial oppression. It's not like, as we talked about last week, water's not in short supply. But if you want it, you're forced to pay for it, right? Now, we, I mean, what do we do? We, I mean, we pay arm and a leg for water because, I don't know, there's something wrong with us. But no, when there's water that's available in a spring that just comes up, you should be able to go and take and use. But they are financially oppressed having to pay both for water and for wood. You can't go gather wood. And we know that there is wood, because if you look later on, the young boys, they are laboring, carrying the wood in. Understanding would be from out in the wilderness, they gather it and bring it in. But then if the people are needing it, they're having to buy that very wood that the boys are gathering. So the financial oppression. 
Yeah, anything else? What else do we notice? Yeah. Yeah, just the loss of, dig- of dignity. And you could look at the torture, the defilement, the subjugation. They're just underfoot. It said in verse 6, where it says, We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria just to get enough bread. And who rules over them? Verse 8, slaves rule over them. And there's none to deliver us from a slave's hand. What loss of dignity when you are a slave to the slave. The young men are compelled to grind at the mill. The boys stagger under the loads of wood. Absolutely. There's um, this servitude, this indenturedness. You can look at, um, and th- this, this gets very tragic here, but even the defilement where it says the women, the young women are defiled. Both in Zion and Jerusalem, but through the, through the towns, through the cities of Judah. Verse 12, what would be the reasoning here? Princes are hung by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Just loss of dignity. The goal is to humiliate and subjugate. It says, verse 5, the pursuers are at our neck. We are weary. We are given no rest. And one commentator had mentioned that the pursuers... They appeared in a variety of places throughout the book so far. And reflecting on God's own wrathful pursuit of his people, let's look at Lamentations chapter 3, if you want to flip back a page there. So in chapters 1, chapters 4, multiple places, we have the people being pursued. But in verse 34 of chapter 3, The Lord, speaking of the Lord, it says, you have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. And this is a reminder, who is the one causing all of these effects on Israel? It is the Lord. God uses the enemies of Jerusalem so that he himself may pursue The people, when God pursues in judgment, there is no escape. And we've seen this repeated throughout the chapters so far, the thorough, complete fullness of the judgment of God against the people. So as we go through and look at these first verses here, it becomes incredibly evident that the people are physically oppressed. What do we find in the dead center of verses 1, going up through verse 13 here, what do we find in the very middle verse in the midst of all of this physical oppression? Somebody tell me what you find. Yes, sir. Seven. Mm Mm-hmm. In the midst 
of this physical oppression, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. We bear their iniquities. And this is not implying that the fathers sinned and the children are bearing the effects of the father's sin. That is something that is true, but that's not what this is saying. We see in Ezekiel 18, and this same message is actually also shared in uh, Jeremiah 31. Um, starting in verse 2 of Ezekiel 18, it says, What do you mean by, repre- by repeating this proverb so concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are now sat on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in this land. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father as well as the souls of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. When they say, our fathers sinned and we are no more, and we bear their iniquities, we, they are not saying We're just having the effects of the sins of of our father. This is a confession that they are bearing or following in the footsteps of the same iniquities of their fathers. God judges the sinner. You cannot pawn off the judgment that you're experiencing against you, you cannot pawn it off and claim victimhood because of your circumstances. Our father's sins and are no more, we bear their iniquities. This is a confession to God in the midst of this physical oppression. In the middle of bearing the rod of God's judgment on their back, they confess and say, our fathers sinned and because of the sin, they died. We bear the same iniquities as our Father. By implication, we deserve the same result. In the midst of feeling the rod, they confess their guilt. And they imply by that that God is the righteous judge. He is right in what He is doing. And and if you look just the verse right before This actually shines a little bit more light on it in verse 6. It says, we looked to other nations for sustenance. They did the same things, giving their hand to Egypt and Assyria that their fathers did. Our fathers sinned and are gone, and we are repeating the same sins that they did. They're on the same path to being no more that their fathers were on. So verse 1 cries out to God to remember. Remember, look, and see. They do not cry out for deliverance. They are just merely crying out for God to look at their condition. Then in verse 6 and ultimately verse 7, they cry out and identify the root of the physical oppression. Say, we have rejected God for the other nations. Our fathers rejected God for the other nations as well. So in Lamentations 5, when you look at those first 13 verses, we're shown the physical oppression. This was an occasion to turn to the Lord. 
And here the people took the opportunity. They seized the chance. They turned to the one whose character demanded that they turn to him. So the second occasion that we have for turning to the Lord after physical oppression, Lamentations 5 gives us the occasion of emotional depression. Read with me verses 14 through 18. It says, The old men have left the city, the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Emotional depression is seen in these verses. And it shows in in several different ways. There's no pastime. If you look in verse 14. It says, the old men have left the city, the young men have left their music. And we're, we're pretty familiar with the concept of the elders, the old men sitting at the city gate where they gathered. And this is where business was transacted. Um, can anyone think of a very well-known um, incident in the Old Testament where there was um, a redemptive transaction that took place at the city gate? Yes, Ruth, exactly. Yes, where Boaz redeemed Ruth. Where did he go? To the city gates where the elders were, where the old men were sitting. Um, But this is also just where, I guess you could say, the scuttlebutt of the city is described as who's coming in and out of the city and you sit down and um, you just uh, talk. This is what old men do and this is what Randy Travis was known for with his song. As long as old men sit and talk about the weather and as long as old women sit and talk about old men. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, and, and this song, he's just saying, this is going to go on forever and ever. This is, this is what men do. They gather and they gather together and they talk, but it's no more. There's no more pastime. The men have left the gates. The young men, they don't have their music. This is what young men do. This is what old men do. And it's not happening. We also see this depression taking place if you look in verse 15. It says, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. If you look at verse 17, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. We know what they're experiencing. That sick heart, the dim eyes. One one commentator mentioned here, said, the notion of darkening eyes. It's observed earlier, the same term was used in how the gold in the people's faces have both grown dim. In chapter 4, growing dark denoted how the brilliant relationship with God had been reversed. The eyes growing dim matches this reversal. 
as opposed to being vibrant and full of life, now the eyes have seen such darkness that they themselves have become dull and worn out. Depression has overtaken the people. Their eyes have dimmed. Their hearts have fainted and become sick. And much like the image we had earlier, where Jeremiah, as he was writing, was sickened to the point that his insides were becoming the outside, as his bile was thrown on the street, in much the same way that people are just sickened in their heart. And also, you can look in verse 16, the glory is gone. It says, the crown has fallen from our heads. It says, the crown has fallen from our heads. Um, One commentator says, this could refer to the end of the Davidic dynasty with King Zedekiah's capture, but it's more likely a general statement of former prosperity and prestige among the nations that is now no more. And to get an idea about the crown on the head and what that would mean, I'm going to just read a piece of a verse from Job. In Job 19, verse 9, it says, He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. Jerusalem's crown, Jerusalem's glory has fallen. Depression has overcome and taken the people. But just like we had confession in the midst of the physical oppression, let's look and see what we find in the dead middle of these verses describing this emotional depression that takes place. In verse 16, it says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. Once again, confession. We have sinned. If you were to look at this entire chapter so far, from 2 all the way up to verse 18, you could say, we are broken because we are sinners. Physically, emotionally, we are broken because we are sinners. Or you could say, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm a sinner, I'm broken. Notice what is absent and missing from this confession once again. At this point, there is still no cry for deliverance. It's a condition, I mean, it's a confession of his condition. It's a confession of his sinfulness. It's a confession, this is who I am. I am sinful, and I am bearing the judgment of the Lord. So I want you to look in in your text right now, verses 16 through 18. What is a word that you see repeated in these few verses? It's one sentence. What word is repeated here? Because. Because. Some translations will say for. So listen to this. I have four, but um, it says, woe to us for 
we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. He says, woe to us is calling down a curse. It's calling down a condemnation upon us. And why is the poet calling down this curse, this woe upon us? For, and he has a string of fours. So for, it can also be translated, as Drew mentioned, because or because of this. So woe to us because of this, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart has become sick. Because of this, our eyes have grown dim. Because of this, Mount Zion is desolate and wild. Jerusalem is desolate and wild because of the chain of events. And the very first link in that chain is that the people of Jerusalem have sinned. For this reason, because we have sinned, woe to us. So in Lamentations 5, you see these occasions for people to confess, to turn to the Lord. You see that they did turn to the Lord in their physical oppression. You see that when they're emotionally in depression, they turn to the Lord. They confess their sins. They don't cry out for help. It's just confessing who they are. I am a sinner under the rod of God's discipline. But then we also are given a third occasion for turning to the Lord. And this is that um, I had an application I was going to mention. We'll tack this on at the end. Let's look at this. So let's go ahead and look at the third occasion uh, for turning to the Lord. The third occasion for turning to the Lord is because of a spiritual confession. And we're going to see that we must turn to the Lord in spiritual confession. Let's start looking at verse 19. It says, But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Spiritual confession, we now get to a plea to, of God. He says, but you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is an exaltation of Yahweh's sovereignty. You reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. He's saying God is sovereign. He rules and his rule has no end. This is the confession of absolute sovereignty of God. He says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? 
Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. He's asking God to abandon the physical, the emotional state that they find themselves in. He then makes a request, a plea to the one who reigns forever. So up till now, there's no request for deliverance. And when the deliverance comes, listen to the request that he makes. Restore us to yourself. Not back to Jerusalem. Not, back, not restore our wealth. Not restore our health, our inheritance. It's restore us to yourself. That we may be restored from our misery. That we may return to the days of old. And we mentioned this earlier. The, the glory days, the days of David where he was faithfully following the Lord, where God was faithfully blessing them. One, one gentleman mentioned, the Lord's stern discipline has awakened within Judah a sense of their own sinfulness, worthlessness, and helplessness. And finally, out of the depths of bitterness, bitterness occasioned by divine chastisement, she invokes God's grace and compassion. Restore us that we may be restored. And this is something that we recognize as New Testament believers. And where my mind immediately went was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And what is God doing? He's reconciling the lost to himself. The restoration replacing that hostile relationship with that friendly one. And then after reconciling the world to himself, what does he do? But he gives the one who has been restored to him that ministry of reconciliation. Now you go, you restore other people to me. Notice who will need to do this action of restoration. In their confession, he says, restore us to yourself. We are dependent upon the Lord to do the act of restoring. This is why they ask God to restore them back to themselves. Are you under the discipline of the Lord? Do not deceive yourself that you are in need of physical restoration or emotional restoration. These do not come apart from the restoration of your walk and your relationship with the Lord. And in verse 22, we actually find that this request of restoration, restore us to yourself, it actually comes with the provision of how he would ask God to withdraw or to, to not give him this. And he gives the provision of how he would withdraw his request from the Lord. Restore us to yourself unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain 
exceedingly angry with us. He says, I may withdraw this request of restoration. Don't restore me to you if you have utterly rejected us. If your anger is still kindled. You are sovereign. There is a reason for our being forgotten. Our sin. Restore us to you unless you sovereignly choose not to. What a statement of faith. Restore me to yourself, but not my will be done. This is the prayer of what he is praying. Now he knows Deuteronomy 30. He knows God's character. And he knows as he returns to the Lord, because of God's character, God's character, his steadfast love never ceases. And he knows what the character of God will will do. But he still asks, not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to go up to what I had skipped earlier. (laughs) So, um, when we look at... When we look at ourselves and our own sinfulness, I want us to think back to how we started the message at the very beginning when we were looking at the discipline of our children. In that instance, when we were talking about the discipline of our children, how did your children or your child respond? Did he stiffen his neck to the point of breaking? We've seen that. Did she confess and accept the discipline, even though it was not pleasant? How do you long for your children to respond under discipline? Likewise, how does your heavenly Father long for you to respond How does he long for you to respond when you're under the discipline of the Lord? He longs for you to confess and repent in the midst of the discipline. These are occasions for turning to the Lord in confession, just like what we saw in Lamentations chapter 5. We see that in John chapter 1, God offers forgiveness for those who confess their sins. In James 5, God offers healing for those who confess their sins. John Chrysostom, he says, do not be ashamed, or he says, be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. We must turn to the Lord in confession when we are under the physical oppression of God's discipline. We must turn to the Lord in confession when we're under the emotional depression of God's discipline. 
We must turn to the Lord in spiritual confession. We must turn to the Lord and be able to say to Him, not my will, but yours be done. And you can pray that prayer safely to Him because as is shown to us throughout the book of Lamentations, God's character demands that we turn to Him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You that You are the Sovereign who reigns from eternity to eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Father, may we not be ashamed to repent and confess but may we quickly turn when we find ourselves under the rod of your discipline. Amen.